Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Pom Pom Spot by Ian Gordon. One. From the little known travel blog Hitchens Britain, first published October 2006. A Weird Encounter in the Hills by Mark Hitchens. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, you read that right. A Weird Encounter in the Hills. Doesn't sound like a typical Hitchens Britain post, does it? Sounds more like the title of a horror story. Well, that's probably closer to the truth. It's a title with two meanings, but I'll get to that. So I was up in Yorkshire, doing my thing, exploring the grounds of Castle Howard, sampling the local produce, and all that good stuff. This was last Thursday, I might add. October 22nd. Anyway, I'd spent the day, mentally at least, putting the outline of a post together based on my time in the hills, and found myself, at around 6.30 in the evening, traipsing up and down the cobbled streets of a beautiful Awardian Hills village, looking for somewhere to grab a bite to eat. This insatiable appetite of mine delivered me to the Bludgeon in Ox, a typical country inn, within the cosy confines of which I managed to score for myself a rather satisfying portion of scampi and chips. Chomping away at the feast before me, I happened to look up from the comfort of the booth I was sitting in, and watched with curious eyes as a lanky, lavishly dressed gentleman approached the bar. The bartender muttered something to the newcomer, who in turn responded with a mumble of his own. He then parked himself at the bar and lit a cigarette. Seconds later, the skinny chap was enveloped by a cloud of smoke, and was all but lost to my gaze. I finished my meal and approached the bar. The fellow with the cigarette, who had ordered a cup of black tea to go with his dose of nicotine, seemed impervious to my presence. Looking at him, I couldn't pin an age on him. He might have been thirty-five or sixty-five. The lines under his eyes and the silver streaks in his hair only added to that sense of agelessness. I meant to pay for my meal and be on my way, but the bartender, suddenly talkative, insisted on knowing who I was and what I was doing up there. Naturally, I gave him the gist, and he asked me where the travel-writing game was to take me next. And so I told him. It's the Peak District for a couple of days, I said, followed by the Lincolnshire Wolds. The Wolds, sir? he asked. A strange look crossed his face, and, for the first time, mention of the Wolds provoked a reaction, a judder of sorts, out of the silent figure to my immediate left. That's right, I confirmed. The bartender eyeballed the smoking punter, who, as if in response to some unspoken command, nodded slowly. Is there something I should know about the walls? I asked reluctantly. You'll be visiting Luth, I suppose, the bartender continued. Er, yes, I stammered. It's on my itinerary. Better watch yourself down there, sir. What a strange comment from a bartender in a quiet pub, a whole county away. So I asked him the only obvious question. Why is that exactly? And then... The bartender glanced at the lanky fellow beside me, who, once again, nodded slowly. Carefully, he extinguished the cigarette, clutched his cup of tea, 
ogled me like a crazy man, then took a long comedic sip. I was about to repeat my question when the quiet gent spoke. If you have the time, he began, his voice rich and colourful, certainly not what I was expecting. I'll tell you a story. Immediately hypnotised, I nodded and sat myself down next to him. Well, he said, motioning towards the still warm teapot by the till across the bar. Pour our friend here a cup of tea, will you? And Al, the landlord of the bludgeoning ox, proceeded to do just that, while I sat there in silence, ready to listen to whatever it was the man at the bar wanted to tell me. I'll do my best to deliver the tale verbatim. It shouldn't be too difficult. That chap really knew how to paint a picture. Now then, he began, last summer I was in the Lincolnshire Wolds, on business. An elderly lady had contacted me with regards to a possible case of infestation in a crumbling outbuilding to the rear of her property. With some trepidation, I agreed to pay the lady a visit, and over the course of half a day made the somewhat gruelling journey via public transportation from my homestead here in the hills to the bustling market town of Luth. The town was very much alive when I arrived that stuffy evening. Youngsters prowled in packs, and intoxicated adults spilled in and out of pub porches. I traversed the busy streets in quest of the Queen's Head Inn, my lodgings of choice for a couple of nights. I was warmly greeted by the staff at the inn, and was shown to a rather luxurious suite on the first floor. But a little past eight p.m., after dining alone in the on-site restaurant, I settled into my comfortable digs and read up on the history of Luth. I had managed to procure a copy of a book by the name of The Haunted History of Luth, and was scouring its pages for documented reports of infestations and manifestations as having taken place in the town and the surrounding hills throughout the last century. The country house Thorpe Hall caught my eye, the gardens of which were said to be frequented by the ghost of a Spanish lady in a green dress. I also read reports of a soldier often seen walking a dog in the hills nearby, but both these accounts and several others I went on to read were little more than folkloric anecdotes, offering nothing of relevance to my imminent investigation. I suppose the strangeness began that very first night. I hit the feathers at approximately 10.30 p.m., thoroughly exhausted after a long day, but was jolted awake at around eleven by the most horrible din, a relentless tittering that seemed to be coming from the suite next door. Though the laughter itself lasted only a couple of minutes, the memory of it lingered for a good hour or two in my unsettled brain. It had been unnatural, that chuckle. The following morning, not quite as rested as I would have liked, I set out in the direction of my client's bungalow on the edge of town, a beautiful spot at the top of Little Crowtree Lane. I introduced myself to the old dear, and followed her into the rear garden, all the while listening to her speak of the thing that watched and mocked her from the ruined, moss-covered outbuilding at the far end of the plot. But that's where her story ends. At this point the ageless fellow took a sip of his tea, and lit another cigarette. A long-drawn-out silence ensued. Was that it? The whole story? 
I was about to verbalise my thoughts when he started up again. As I approached the outbuilding, I happened to glance towards the landscape beyond, the wild countryside known as Harris's Hills. As the lady babbled on, mostly incognizant of my presence, I perceived a figure, that of a young boy, making his way across the open meadow. In cupped hands held up to his chest, the boy appeared to be carrying something, something round and bright blue. His demeanour was suspicious. With every step he cast wary eyes in all directions, seemingly protective of his luminous cargo. Spouting apologies to the chattering lady, I vaulted the low stone wall separating her property from the fields, and edged towards the surreptitious boy. Careful though he was, the young chap was far from worldly-wise, and failed to observe my approach. Had I been a big cat in the savannah, the youngster wouldn't have stood a chance. I called to him in a calm voice, "'What have you got there?' He turned, startled. "'Ah, uh, nothing,' he replied between heavy breaths. "'Looks like something to me,' I said, eyeballing the object held to his chest. "'It's—it's—' he stammered. "'It's trouble, I imagine,' I finished for him. The boy studied me cautiously. I guessed he was somewhere in the region of thirteen years old, his face awash with youthful wonder, his scruffy jeans and filthy t-shirt testament to the trials and tribulations of a boy in the grip of adolescence. "'Who are you?' he asked at last. "'I'm an investigator. See that lady back there?' And I gestured in the direction of my disgruntled client, now watching from the boundary of her property, her well-oiled jaw still in motion, her flailing arms conveying her frustration. "'Yeah?' the boy confirmed. She's my client. A look of bewilderment washed over the boy's face. She doesn't look too pleased, he observed. That's because I had to abandon her situation in favour of your situation, I explained. My situation? That's right, and I believe it centres around that object you're holding. The boy let out a reluctant sigh, and proceeded to tell me all about what he referred to as the pom-pom spot. The what spot? I immediately asked. I hadn't intended to interrupt the man. The question just sort of popped out. The pom-pom spot, he repeated. Allow me to elaborate. And so the odd, tea-drinking character at the bar did just that. According to the boy, he said, the pom-pom spot was an urban legend, a cursed place in Harris's Hills, said to be the final resting-place of a local entertainer, a character once known as Corby the Clown. Allegedly, the late performer had got himself into a spot of bother with the local community, owing to an unhealthy interest in certain members of the opposite sex. An inability to control his carnal desires had angered many a married man, a number of whom, thoroughly tired of the clown's inappropriate behaviour, had set out to teach Corby a lesson. Unfortunately, so the legend went, the angry mob took things too far, choosing to feed the clown one of his own pom-poms, upon which he choked to death. It was then said that the men buried Corby in Harris's hills, leaving, for reasons unknown, a single pom-pom atop a shallow grave. 
As the boy related this last detail, I glanced again at the object in his hands, a bright blue pom-pom. What the youngster had stumbled upon I hadn't a clue, but I felt the presence of something lurking beyond his unsettled demeanour and furtive glances, a presence that had drawn my attention to the strange item in his possession quite inexplicably. My objective was clear. The nervous child needed help. My happening upon him there in the grass that afternoon was no accident, and so, somewhat reluctantly, the boy agreed to take me to where he found the item in question, the aforementioned pom-pom spot. From our location at the edge of Luth, we climbed a little higher into Harris's hills, following a well-trodden path in the direction of an area of dense woodland. The boy said he was an explorer, and had spent the entire summer in search of the pom-pom spot, after hearing the legend whispered about amongst a group of teenagers in the centre of town. Nobody else other than himself, he claimed, knew of the location, other than the alleged perpetrators, that is, the identities of whom the boy, naturally, had no knowledge of. After some fifteen minutes or so of hiking, we came upon an old fieldstone wall bordering a small allotment of sorts, host to a number of silver birches and stunted grass. Over the wall I went, guided by the boy, and into the centre of the plot we strolled, till we reached a molehill-sized mound protruding from the ground. The youngster pointed at the mound, and said, quite simply, There. I asked the boy to position the pom-pom precisely where he'd found it, and he did so. I gazed at the item atop the mound, and decided the time had come to ask the boy another question. Does the legend of Corby the Clown have— Anything to say about when, exactly, he was buried here? The boy shrugged. That pom-pom doesn't look all that old or weathered now, does it? I continued. Again, the boy just shrugged. Although the youngster was offering me very little to work with, I couldn't shake the notion that there was something very wrong there in that allotment. There was a strange odour in the air— not the foul reek of death one might expect to linger beside a shallow grave, but a sweet scent, the smell of toffee apples and candy floss, a faint whiff of the circus, perhaps. I didn't like it one bit. I decided it was high time to return to Luth, in order to ask around with regards to the late clown, but not before collecting the pom-pom and returning it to its new owner. As I crouched to retrieve it, my focus shifted to the earth atop the miniature mound. Did I perceive a number of dark hairs amongst the blades of stunted grass? Not wanting to alarm the child, I ignored the sighting. Handing him his blue prize, the two of us returned to Luth. In order to alleviate any unwelcome suspicions, I accompanied the boy home, and introduced myself to his parents. I simply explained— that I was in Luth on business, and that I'd observed the boy in the wilderness looking a little out of his depth. It was in my interest to see that he made it home safely. And it was then that I finally learned the boy's name—George. George's mother was especially talkative, being familiar with the publication Fortean Weekly, a magazine I contribute to on a regular basis. George's father, though, seemed to study me with a degree of uncertainty— 
had done so ever since I mentioned my stumbling upon the boy at the edge of Harris's hills. Neither saw the boy's prized possession, though, which was safely concealed beneath the shabby baseball cap he wore. I said farewell to George, and took my leave. My first port of call following my experience with the boy in Harris's hills was to visit the local library. In my line of work, a small town's library is the best place to familiarize oneself with its history, though I have to admit I couldn't shake the feeling that something was drawing me towards the library. I felt like a flapping fish on an invisible line. I made my way via Northgate to my destination, and entered in as clandestine a manner I could muster up. It's a small library, the one at Luth, and so I paced myself accordingly, on the lookout for books and newspapers pertaining to local history. I wanted to avoid speaking to the librarians in the first instance, as I found over the years that strangers making inquiries with regards to criminal activity in the locale can often be met with hostility. Browsing the aisles, I happened upon an older gentleman taking his time by a section dedicated to classical literature. He was short, this individual, standing a mere five feet or so, but it was a shortness, I observed, owing to an extreme curvature of the spine. With some difficulty, he looked up and studied me, and I knew immediately that whatever it was he was about to tell me wouldn't be found in any of the numerous books surrounding me. "'You're here about Corby, aren't you?' he stated, his high-pitched tones raucous and unpleasant. "'Yes,' I answered. "'How did you know?' To which the senior gestured towards a vacant table at the end of the aisle. I followed him, and the two of us sat. The small man eyeballed me some more, before saying, "'The boy. Found it, didn't he?' "'Yes,' I answered again, seemingly incapable of saying anything else. A protracted silence followed, but the old man's eyes remained fixed upon me. "'I know,' the man continued, "'because you're here. Saw it all coming, I did.' "'How's that, then?' I insisted. "'Can't tell you, sir.' Can't? Can't, he confirmed. Can you tell me anything else about Corby the Clown? The old man nodded. There were two of them, the old man began. Twins they were, Corby and Curtains. Corby wore blue, Curtains wore red. Corby was a good'un, Curtains not so much. The latter, well, he went after the women, that one. Hurt em, he did. Went out dressed as Corby, fooled em. Those men, they went after the blue clown. Killed him, they did. Buried him up there in the hills, right where you stood this morning, sir. Again, I asked him, how do you know all this? And again, he answered, can't tell you, sir. How long ago did this happen? Oh, decades ago, sir. Thirty years or more, I reckon. Another awkward silence followed, before the senior spoke again. "'Got to put that pom-pom back, sir,' he stated flatly. "'And why's that?' I asked. "'Trust me, sir.' "'To be fair,' I said, "'you're not giving me much to work with.' And with that, the old gent climbed to his feet, and shuffled away towards the exit. It was only as he disappeared from view entirely, that I once again became aware of that 
strange, sweet odour, the smell of toffee apples and candy floss. I shuddered. Feeling a little deflated, I returned to my suite at the Queen's Head in order to reflect upon the unusual morning I'd had. From the moment I'd glimpsed the boy in the field, I'd felt unusually compelled to learn all I could about what it was he'd been clutching, what it was, and where it had come from. And tugging on that thread had revealed, little by little, a larger and more intricate tapestry, involving George's hesitant father and the strange clairvoyant at the library. I dined at the inn's restaurant for lunch, and headed back out into Luth a little after two p.m. I wanted to familiarize myself with the town's centre and back streets, wanted to get a little closer to what had once been the stomping grounds of two entertainers, Corby and Curtains, the clowns blue and red. Going about my business, I perceived something unwelcome in the eyes of the locals that passed me on Eastgate, the same cowed uncertainty that I'd seen in the eyes of young George's father. On Burnt Hill Lane, onto which I'd strolled to avoid the piercing gazes of a mother and child on Queen Street, I happened to notice, amid the graffiti, three words that sent a shiver down my spine. In bright blue spray-paint, the colour highly reminiscent of George's pom-pom, was the phrase, Corby will rise. Two. Al, the landlord of the Bludgeon in Ox, poured fresh cups of tea for the lanky fellow and me. I wasn't sure what to make of his story so far, and no doubt the blank expression splashed across my face probably told the teller as much. I got the impression that the man was probably used to this kind of reaction, given that the impression on his face remained fixed in a sort of mild grimace. He had a weary look about him, not altogether vacant, but a sort of melancholy, possibly owing to the very singular line of work he was in. Lighting another cigarette, the well-spoken gent offered me one, which I politely declined, before continuing with his tale. "'I spent the remainder of the day in my suite at the Queen's Head,' he said, mulling over the unusual events of the day, and the abnormality that was sure to follow. It was clear to me that I'd stumbled upon something rather unique there in Luth, a state of paranormal affairs the likes of which I hadn't previously encountered. I felt certain that the disturbance of Corby the Clown's final resting place had triggered a sort of telepathic fog, through which certain cautious citizens of Luth had been made aware of my intentions— particularly in the case of the hunched senior at the library. That, or young George's happening upon the late entertainer's shallow grave, had awoken something in the corpse below, allowing it to reach out to members of the community in an effort to be discovered. Of course, these thoughts were by their very nature erratic, and left me with more questions than answers. Later that evening, at approximately eleven p.m., my attempts to sleep were once again disturbed by the sound of laughter. The suite was dark, dimly illuminated by the glare of a streetlight outside. As I came to, I became increasingly aware of the proximity of the laughter. It was a low, strained noise, 
the kind of mirth forced through clenched teeth, the unnatural laughter of an unhappy clown. And this time it was emanating from inside the suite. I reached for the lamp by the bed, assured that the light it would throw into the room would reveal the interloper, wherever it may be. But the ensuing light revealed nothing whatsoever. The laughter abruptly stopped. Paid you a visit, didn't he? This from the bartender, Al. I surmised as much, and immediately went for my notepad in order to make a note of the time. 11.06 p.m. Observations such as these can be useful, I found. The following morning, having slept soundly without any repeat visitations, I ate a hearty breakfast courtesy of the inn, then set out in the direction of the pom-pom spot. This was approximately 8.30 a.m., and it was already twenty-one degrees, the promise of a sizzling afternoon to come. Finding my way back to the allotment in the hills was no trivial matter. More than once I found myself up to my ears in ferns and brambles, oh, to be in possession of those boyhood instincts once more. By the time I hopped over the fieldstone wall bordering the allotment, I was covered from head to toe in dandelion fluff and burdock burrs. Not quite Robinson Crusoe, I can tell you. Once again I made my way into the centre of the plot, and searched for the small mound young George had led me to the day before. But it was no mound I found. Something else entirely occupied the spot from which the youngster had retrieved that bright blue pom-pom. You may recall that I noted a number of hairs atop the mound on my first visit. Well, an entire head of hair now projected from the stunted grass, a head of blue hair, complete with blood-red lips, a clown's red nose, and a face painted blue and white. It was utterly motionless, and its eyes were closed, but it didn't appear to be a head belonging to a corpse. It was clear to me that I was looking upon the face of a living man, buried up to his head in the dirt. I moved closer crouching in the process. I studied the buried clown with a great deal of trepidation. What was it, he, doing there? I crept within striking distance of the head, looking for subtle signs of movement. Was it a prank? Was I the victim of a loose tradition? Carefully, I reached out and touched the clown's chinless face. The flesh was hard and cold— the face-paint dry. I prodded the head again, but no response was elicited. Was the man deceased, after all? The pate was firm, rigid, like the trunk of a tree. I stood up and stepped away from the spectacle. I searched for signs of recent activity in the surrounding earth, but it was quite evident to me that the ground beneath my feet hadn't been disturbed in a very long time. The brown, underdeveloped grass stood as a testament to the fact. But as I stood there, studying the scene, something truly unprecedented was unfolding before my eyes. Slowly, ever so faintly, the head was rising from the stunted grass. I shook my own head several times and refocused my gaze. But still— the strange dome continued to rise from the ground. A long, pale neck emerged, 
attached to which was a blue and white bow-tie, the likes of which only a dedicated clown would wear. And, several moments later, when blue ruffles surmounting broad shoulders arose from the infertile earth, I gasped audibly. The stiff figure was, in effect, growing out of the soil. The following flashes remain as mere fragments in my memory, but I'll do my best to piece them together for you. The rate at which the clown grew accelerated exponentially. Up and up it rose, revealing more and more of its blue and white costume, like toothpaste squeezed out of a tube. And just like expelled goo, the rigid clown tipped slowly forward, till a pair of oversized shoes emerged from the earth, and the purged figure fell like a domino to the surface of the allotment. It was about then that I noticed claw-like tendrils attached to the bottoms of the clown's shoes. Had the late entertainer taken root in the earth like a regular vegetable? Stunned, I turned, and fled. At this point, the ageless man took a long sip of tea, and lit another cigarette. I noticed that his hands were shaking. "'Can you imagine such a thing?' he asked. I simply shook my head, holding back a chuckle. I was still waiting for the punchline. But no such thing was imminent. The man continued. Deciding the dandelions and the burdocks were the least of my concerns, I returned to Luth via the most direct route I could manage.' paying no heed to the brambles and nettle-patches in my path. Like a man gone feral, I ran along Gospel Gate, tore my way through the crowds on Kidgate, and mounted the steps two at a time to the safety of my suite at the Queen's Head. What the locals made of me I hadn't a clue, but I simply had to clean up, change clothes, and put some thought into just what it was I had witnessed at the pom-pom spot. A cool shower served to soothe the numerous nettle-stings, and a pair of tweezers liberated the majority of the thorns that had buried themselves in my knuckles. Sore but safe, I dressed, and, driven by that same inexplicable force that appeared to be guiding me from A to B and back again, I strode out into the land of the living, towards Luth Library. It was a little after midday when I reached my destination. The sun was high in the sky. Twenty-seven degrees, a digital display outside the library informed me. Sweating, I crept into the cool sanctuary of the library. Just as I had done the previous day, I crept from aisle to aisle, keeping my head down, in sharp contrast to my wild gallop across town just an hour before. And there, slinking along by the classical literature section, was the old clairvoyant, the man with the hunched back. "'He's returned, hasn't he?' he said upon spotting me. "'Something's returned,' I agreed noncommittally. "'What's going on here?' "'He wants revenge,' the old man continued. "'They got the wrong man, remember?' "'I remember very well,' I answered. "'But I don't believe that that's the main concern here. In fact, if I were pressed on the matter— I'd have to nominate the clown rising out of the barren earth situation as the main concern. With great difficulty, the old man straightened up to an angle of roughly forty-five degrees, and looked me square in the eye. 
"'Best put him back, sir,' he said. "'Put him back in the earth and put the pom-pom back. That ought to do it, sir.' And with those final words, the old man once again shuffled away from me, and out into the heat of the day. I would have gone after him, but I'd noticed something. I recognized him. Though his face had seen many years, evidenced by lines of varying depth, the high-set brow, coupled with the tall cheekbones and a curious chinlessness, reminded me of the thing that had emerged from the pom-pom spot. There was no doubt in my mind. The old man was Curtin's, Corby's twin brother. Could it be possible, I mused, that young George's removal of the pom-pom inadvertently re-established an old bond that once existed between the two? Corby, given license to rise once more, might well have transmitted his intentions to his guilty brother. And I, the investigator in the wrong place at the wrong time, caught up in a most unwelcome telepathic web. Of course, this was all speculation on my part. But I've been right before, and knew that I had to act accordingly. And so I set out to George's house up on Woodvale Rise. It was mid-afternoon when I arrived, and I was lucky enough to encounter the boy playing at the front of the house. He listened eagerly, as I related what I had learned and experienced over the last twenty-four hours. Anticipating the conclusion, George was quick to offer his assistance in returning the reanimated form of Corby the Clown to the earth, and offered a quick glimpse under his baseball cap, where still the bright blue pom-pom remained concealed. Within a matter of minutes, the two of us were ascending Crowtree Lane in the direction of Harris's Hills. I was glad to have the boy with me, as I had absolutely no desire to repeat my tussles with the underbrush again, so soon after recovering from my copious injuries. We reached the allotment in good time, exhausted though we were by the ambient temperature, which by this time had crested thirty degrees. Thirsty, and with further toil ahead of us, we hopped over the fieldstone wall and sought the stiff body of old Corby. But before we reached the site of the unearthing, troubling signs hinted at the possibility that we may not succeed in our efforts to return the latest member of the living dead to the ground. We observed dozens of large, unsettling footprints in the dry earth, patches of stunted grass tamped down by gargantuan heavy shoes. We followed these prints in reverse, from the inner edge of the plot to the pom-pom spot. Not only had Corby the Clown been thrust out of the earth like a newborn, but also had he climbed to his revived feet, and taken off in the direction of his old stomping-ground, Luth. 3. Having listened with great interest to the cigarette-smoking gentleman thus far, I ordered myself a rum and coke for the third and final act. The lanky chap wasted no time whatsoever in getting to it. The remainder of the day was spent in quest of the thing that had sprung from the dry earth before my eyes. Conscientiously, I advised young George to make his way home, to leave the sordid business of tracking Corby the Clown to me, but the little chap was having none of it, 
and persisted in following me across town. I began my search in the cemetery on London Road. It was a logical starting point, given the cemetery's location at the edge of the hills. The sweat literally poured from my brow as I scanned the graveyard for blue and white abnormalities in the shape of men. But there was nothing to be glimpsed between the crumbling stones and the derelict tombs. Reaching Linden Walk, I moved northeast along Tennyson Road, and northwest along Newmarket towards the centre of town. I was on high alert. Every cerulean t-shirt and periwinkle dress triggered my already tense nerves, resulting in unwelcome outbursts the likes of which I was thankful young George wasn't close enough to hear. The search continued in such a fashion for several hours. With twilight upon me, a striking pink sky it was, I found myself a couple of hundred metres along the Luth Canal, with a weary boy at my heels, the two of us utterly drained. Sluggishly, we made our way back to the centre of town, and reconvened by one of Luth's plentiful late shops, from which I purchased refreshments for George and me. "'It's time for you to head home, George,' I said, motioning in a northwesterly direction. "'Your parents are going to be wondering what on earth you've got yourself into.' The boy had turned, and was about to do as I directed, when I asked one final thing of him. I coughed, and held out my hand. The boy removed his baseball cap, revealing the bright blue pom-pom amid a mound of unkempt strawberry-blonde hair. Quite willingly, he handed the pom-pom over to me, and took off at speed. Tired, hot, and bothered, I made my way back to the Queen's Head. I washed, changed, put on my thinking cap, and made myself comfortable once more at the desk by the window overlooking Eastgate. I considered the fact that much, if not all, of what I'd learned with regards to the strangeness in Luth had come to me inexplicably. My initial instincts regarding the boy in the field, the sense of something out of the ordinary by the so-called pom-pom spot, the unwelcome glare of many a suspicious local, and the mysterious lore of the old clairvoyant down at the library, of him in particular, whose insights had been gained by some extraordinary telepathic medium. And so I decided to remain at my station, clutching the blue pom-pom by the window, observing the comings and goings of all and sundry, the twilight boozers and the early evening joggers, the groups of teenagers and the enthusiastic dog-walkers, the couples romancing and the low-key police patrols. But nothing came to me, inexplicable or otherwise. The hours ticked by. And then, subtly at first, but with a gradual intensification, I sensed something outré. I glanced at my watch. It was approaching eleven p.m. With little to no thought whatsoever— I climbed to my feet and exited the suite. Calmly, I made my way through the inn, and stepped out into the sweltering heat of the night. I held the pom-pom out before me, allowing it to guide me. Whether it truly was the pom-pom that pulled me eastward, I'll never know. But there in that moment, it felt to me as though the object had become a compass, 
luring me towards something of great significance. I left the main thoroughfare, and found myself traversing Monk's Dyke Road, moving ever eastward. I specifically recall passing the unassuming frontage of Luth Evangelical Church, before being drawn, as it were, along a gravel side street, dimly illuminated by the light from a crescent moon. The lanky gent paused to light another cigarette. His already pale face took on an even lighter shade, as he prepared to tell me what he saw on the side street. I braced myself. Some distance ahead of me, say, thirty or forty paces, I saw, roughly silhouetted atop a minor acclivity, two figures. One was short and hunched, its hands together before it as if held in prayer. The other was tall and foreboding, the tell-tale characteristics of an oversized neck ruffle and baggy trousers, highly suggestive of the thing that had just that very morning risen from the ground. I crept closer still, as the taller of the two reached out with enormous swollen hands, and took the other by the throat. Into the air the smaller figure was lifted, a mere pixie in the hands of a behemoth. I heard wheezing and muted groaning, as the giant figure squeezed the life out of its writhing victim, and then followed an alarmingly disconcerting crack as the pixie's neck was snapped like a pencil. Corby the clown's alien laughter met my ears. Still clutching its victim by the broken neck, the giant turned to face me. Briefly, I caught a glimpse of its cold, glazed eyes, illuminated by a bright, distant light, before it took off at an inhuman pace, the dead body of its brother, Curtains, slung over its shoulder. Once again, I glanced at my watch. It was 11.06 p.m. I knew where it was headed, knew where I would find it. The removal of the pom-pom had given Corby license to rise from the earth in order to exact revenge on the one who had been responsible for his untimely death. It had rekindled a strange, psychic connection between the brothers, a bond that somehow I, and quite possibly certain members of the community, had unwittingly intercepted. This, of course, was how Curtains had known that, one, his brother had returned, and, two, that I had become aware of the fact— and that the guilty brother's only chance of survival was to ensure the pom-pom was returned to its rightful place atop the mound in the allotment, to serve the purpose it had served ever since the murder of his innocent brother all those years ago. And so, one last time, I made my way in the direction of the pom-pom spot. Back along Kidgate and Gospelgate, along Crowtree Lane onto Little Crowtree Lane, into the shadowy realm of Harris's hills, guided by the meagre moonlight. The dandelions had their way with me once more, as did the burdocks, but I was undeterred as I followed my nose in quest of the brother's clown. On more than one occasion I was certain I heard the strains of distant laughter, the same horrible strains that had disturbed my sleep at the Queen's head, the same piercing, monstrous chuckles that had followed the snapping of an old man's neck off Monkstyke Road. At last I reached the old fieldstone wall, 
With the last vestiges of strength available to me, I vaulted the wall and crept furtively across the dim plot. Silent as the grave it was. Poignant, really. And then I saw it. Movement. Ever so fleetingly did I see it. Two shapes stood ahead of me, one large and menacing, the other small and broken. The larger of the two sank into the ground, dragged into the earth as it were by something akin to quicksand. A vast, bloated hand was the last thing to disappear from view, which in turn took hold of the small corpse lying prostrate on the stunted grass, and pulled it under two. I rushed towards the resultant pile, and listened to a frightful sequence of guttural chuckles that fought to penetrate the dry earth upon which I stood. I held out the bright blue pom-pom in front of me, stepped forward, and placed it atop the mound. Instantly, the muted laughter that had threatened to deprive me of my sanity ceased. Immediately, stillness returned to the scene, and that vague sense of something out of the ordinary evaporated. That was all. I returned to my suite at the Queen's Head, showered, wrestled once more with the thorns that had embedded themselves in my hands, and slept much after the fashion of the dead clowns, Corby, and Curtains. The following morning I took a bus to Lincoln, and sought the company of a friend of mine, a contact at the City of Lincoln Council. You see, I couldn't abide by the idea that another youngster the likes of George might happen upon that fateful spot, and disturb that grave-marker. I mean, what if Corby wasn't done with his act of vengeance? God only knows how many of Luth's vigilante fathers and husbands might have had a part to play in the innocent clown's premature demise. Mercifully, I was informed that the allotment would be dealt with accordingly, which meant that the pom-pom spot would soon be a thing of the past. One can only hope. And those were the last words the lanky, lavishly-dressed gentleman at the bar voiced. As you can probably appreciate, I sat there for a moment in a complete, stunned silence. The tall chap took one last sip of what had to be cold tea by that time, nodded at Al, the bartender, and promptly left. It was Al who spoke first. See what I mean, sir? He said. Better watch yourself down there. Huh, I managed. Still dumbfounded. With the two of them having me on. A bit of fun with the outsider. I've met all kinds over the years. Folklorists and historians, criminals and con artists, palm readers and psychics, but the chain-smoking, tea-drinking gent was difficult to measure. He positively oozed credibility. So how was it that I found his story so hard to believe? After the event, I was able to learn a little more about our friend at the Bludgeoning Ox, thanks to the publication he referred to in the telling of his story, Fortium Weekly. Seems he's dedicated his life to the study of all things weird and wonderful. All the more appropriate I named this blog entry a weird encounter in the hills. The things he's written about are beyond me. The shapes of Clapham Wood, Lights Over Massam, the Spectre of Ibstock, <laughs> These are places to avoid moving forward, methinks. 
I settled the bill with Al, the bartender, thanked him for the wonderful grub and evening's entertainment, and took my leave for the night. Who was that, anyway? I asked, as I moved towards the door. Oh, that was Van Melsen, our local P.I. P.I., I repeated. Paranormal investigator, he clarified. But never mind that. We just call him Peter. <laughs>